0: Four years ago in the fall, we did not know what we were facing in the coming year. You probably remember it was about November time that we began getting the word that there was a virus coming out of China that might affect us. And it certainly did. After a year of literally being in the darkness, many of us closeted in our homes, not much community during the year of COVID. At the end of that year, on the 18th of December, we, celebrate the, we celebrated the coming of the Christmas star. Do you remember that? Do you remember that event? 18 December, 2020, there was a convergence of Saturn and Jupiter in a way that it had not occurred for 800 years. And many called it the Christmas star. Well, it probably wasn't. It it occurred about 7 BC, uh, which was the uh, incident before the 800 uh, years ago uh, time. It probably wasn't that because we think that Christ was born somewhere between 4 and 6 BC. And if that sounds anachronistic, if it sounds inconsistent that Christ was born four years before Christ, you know that that's because of an inconsistency in the calendar, the medieval calendar by which we go still today. But it may have been the first sign that the Magi had that something unusual was happening in the West that was going to happen. And the next year, in 6 BC, there was another similar incident. It was the convergence of Mars. Jupiter and Saturn, and that may have been another sign. In 5 BC, what we do know is that Chinese astronomers witnessed, we don't know whether it was a supernova or whether it was a comet that was in the region of the uh, constellation of Capricorn. And that occurred about the same time as the Augustan census that we read about in Luke's Gospel, and that may have been the star of Bethlehem. We don't know for sure. What we do know is this, that witness is given in Matthew's gospel that those magi came from the east and they walked in the light. And as they arrived in Jerusalem, they asked the question, where is he who is born, what? King of the Jews. For we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Today's text deals with walking in the light in John's gospel and I think fully to understand what Jesus is saying there in John, the 12th chapter, we need to go back and look at the origin of that light, of that star. We find it first given evidence of in Isaiah, the 9th chapter, that text to which we refer at Christmas time every year during Advent. Uh, of course, we are told, Unto us a child is born, unto us A son is given, and he will be called what? Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. It's in that same passage just prior to that where Isaiah announces that a light will dawn. And this light will dawn not in the south, not in Judea, not over Jerusalem, not over Bethlehem, but that light will dawn in, of all places, Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And we have this confirmed then in Matthew's gospel, which you might consider to be something of a prologue there, where he says that when Jesus heard that John was put in prison, he returned to Galilee and he left Nazareth Nazareth, and he went to live in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles, those living in darkness, have seen a great light. Upon those who live in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You see, that is about what Isaiah had been speaking. When we shift over from Matthew's gospel to John to see what is happening in John the 12th chapter, there are two very clear images that have emerged by this time. One of them is the light of the world, and the other is the Son of Man, and those two converge in this passage. When you do look at John's gospel to trace then the development of the idea of light, of course, in the prologue, we have a pretty full explanation about the light of the world, but the fact of the matter is those who lived in the time of Jesus did not have the opportunity to read John's prologue. That is after the fact. And we understand and we see all of John's gospel in that light. That is the true light that was coming into the world. When you look at the events that unfold in John that reveal the light, it goes something like this. First, in John, the third chapter, there's Jesus' judgment that is related to the light. He, of course, is talking to Nicodemus, and we know Nicodemus was a Jew. He was in Jerusalem. He was a Pharisee. And Jesus says, to him that light has come into the world, but this is the verdict. this is the judgment. This is Jesus' judgment, that men loved what? Darkness more than they did light. You see, the reason that they love darkness more than light, Jesus said, was because their deeds are evil and they want to hide them. They don't want to bring them into the light. But those who practice truth come into the light so that what they have done may be seen and it glorifies God. In John the third chapter in that passage, I think we see a couple of things. That that message was revealed to Nicodemus alone, and it wasn't known by others at that time. And Jesus makes a very clear distinction between light and darkness, and there is an either-or choice that must be made. The next phase of the revelation of the light in John's gospel is found in John the eighth chapter. And Jesus is in the temple treasury. And you know, being in the temple t- treasury, where he, the place of the women, the Gentiles were not allowed to go into the temple. So he is clearly speaking to Jews only. And the Bible says in John the 8th chapter that he was talking to the Pharisees. And he said, what? I am. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Once again, we see that Jesus is speaking to Jews and he is giving to a broader audience now the ultimatum. You either walk in the light or you walk in the darkness. The next phase of revelation in the gospel of John related to the light is found in the very next chapter, in John the ninth chapter. He's in Jerusalem. He is amongst Jews. And he has just healed a man who is born blind, blind from birth, born in darkness. And God... Jesus Christ has opened his eyes to the light. And Jesus in that passage then says something rather unusual. He doesn't say, I am the light of the world only. He says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What he is doing there in John the ninth chapter is he is putting his disciples and the rest of them on notice that the time of light in the world through him is limited and it's coming to an end. His ministry on earth is about to finish as the light of the world, and there's a great deal of urgency, I think, in his voice as he says this. So that is the unfolding of the story in John about the light up to John 12. The other image that is important for this passage is about the Son of Man, and once again, there's a kind of progressive revelation that occurs in the Gospel of John Once again, he's speaking to Nicodemus first in John, the third chapter. He's in Jerusalem. He's speaking to a Jew. And he makes a very oblique reference to the Son of Man. And, you know, Nicodemus didn't understand much of what Jesus was saying, and he admitted it. And I'm not sure that Nicodemus understood what Jesus meant when he said this. But in John, the third chapter, in verse 14, just prior, two verses prior to that passage that we all can quote, John three sixteen, 16, which inca- encapsulates the gospel. You might remember that he said to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the what? As he lifted up the snake, as he lifted up the serpent, as he lifted up the bronze serpent in the desert, in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. There's the first allusion in the gospel of John to the Son of Man, and then we find in John the sixth chapter, he makes it a little clearer as he is talking to the crowd in Capernaum after he has fed the 5,000, and many of them then have crossed the sea and they've come to Capernaum, and he's there explaining about the bread of life, and you might remember what he said. He said, you must eat the flesh of the Son of Man. You must drink the blood of the Son of Man to have life, and then he makes a very clear equation he says you must eat my flesh and eat and drink my blood if you are going to then be raised up on the last day it should be very clear to those that were listening that he has made an equation between the son of man and himself and how did they respond they respond by being scandalized what do you mean by eating the flesh and drinking the blood what i think is pretty clear even at this point they do not fully understand what he means by being the Son of Man. There's one other time before we come to the John, the 12th chapter, where we have a revelation about the Son of Man, and it's to the Pharisees in Jerusalem. And he predicts, and he makes it very clear, what he meant when he had talked to Nicodemus. He had said to Nicodemus that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And in John, the 8th chapter, he says to the Pharisees, when you lift up the Son of Man whatever that means. I'm not sure they understand it. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know I am He. And he makes that very clear. What's not yet clear, even when we come to John, the 12th chapter, is exactly what he means by being lifted up. So let me make a couple of observations about these two images in the Gospel of John. We see in each one of these instances that Jesus has not made yet a connection between the Son of Man and being the light of the world that he has not explained what it means to be lifted up yet. And he has communicated this only to Jews. He has not communicated it to Gentiles. There's no explicit and direct invitation that has been given in the gospel of John yet to the Gentiles. John 12 is a pivotal text in the gospel because it extends the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles, And it explains the identity of Christ, the Messiah, as both the Son of Man and the light of this world. So if you would turn to John, the 12th chapter, I want to walk us through very quickly the context before we look at the passage. You see, it is after the triumphal entry. And in verse number 23, which is a background for the two verses today, it says that his hour has come. He says that his hour has come in verse 23. When is that hour? We don't know. But what we do know is in the next very next chapter, we have the Lord's Supper. So my guess is it is probably late on Thursday and Passion Week. And what we do know is this in the Gospel of John is the very last act of public ministry by Jesus. Now, there are other events that are recorded in the other Gospels, but in the Gospel of John, he makes it important. It is important for him to say in verse number 36. You see what it says in verse number 36. At the very end of this event that we talk about today, then he did what? He went away and he hid himself from them. And there's an epilogue that comes after this. But the next event is the Lord's Supper. You see what happens in this passage just before verses 35 and 36. Jesus has an encounter with the Gentiles. Look at verses 20 through 26. The Greeks seek Jesus in verses 20 and 20 through 22. Now these are not Greek speaking Jews as sometimes we refer to Greeks in the New Testament. When you see this word that is used for the Greeks, the Grecians, everywhere else that it is used in the New Testament, it is in contrast to the Jews. So these are probably Gentiles who are God-fearers who are there for the Passover and they're not allowed to go into the temple. Whatever Jesus has said in the temple itself, they've not heard. They may have heard him out on Solomon's porch do some of the teaching, but he has not heard what we have just referred to a moment ago in the temple treasury. They approach whom? They approach Philip, because Philip probably was a Greek speaker. He was certainly from Galilee, who was from Bethsaida, as also was Andrew, and they bring then the Greeks to Jesus. And Jesus then, here in John the 12th chapter does something that he has not done with the Gentiles before explicitly. He then challenges them to follow him. He gives them the invitation to discipleship. And he begins in verse 23 and 24 by predicting his death. He says, the son of man will be glorified. It's time for the son of man to be glorified. And then he talks about the fact that a seed doesn't bear fruit unless it falls to the earth and it dies. And then it raises up fruit after its death. The illusion is very clear. He is talking about the Son of Man dying. He's predicting his death. And he's telling this to the Gentiles. And then he challenges them in verses 25 and 26, the beginning of verse 26, to follow him. He says, you see, if you want to keep your life, you're going to lose it. But if you want to, if you really want to keep it, then you must actually, in fact, lose it. If you try to hold on to it, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it, then you will gain it. And he then tells them this in the context of losing their life like he is. And he challenges them to follow him and to serve him. And in the end of verse number 26, he he says that the reward is going to be twofold. Those who then follow him and serve him will be with him. And what they know later is that they will be with him in his heavenly home. And the Father will honor whoever serves Christ. At this point, Jesus goes through the anguish that the other gospels say that he experienced in the garden. And he has this question in his mind. Can, can he go through with this? And, and he wonders whether or not he ought to ask the Father to take the cup from him. But he wants the Father to be glorified above all. And he says, Father, whatever else happens, you will be glorified. Please glorify yourself. And then there is this large noise. Those who hear it don't understand what has happened. But it is the Father speaking from heaven. And he confirms what Jesus has said. I have glorified it. I have glorified my name. And I will glorify it again. Of course, speaking about glorification through the crucifixion and resurrection. This is the third time that the Father has spoken from heaven. The first time, of course, was in the baptism at the River Jordan. And we don't know who was there then. And then the Mount of Transfiguration, and we do know who was there, apart from Moses and Elijah and Jesus. It was the inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. On this occasion, it is the Gentiles who hear the Father speak. And the result of the Father being glorified in verse number 30 is very clear. It says, and the ruler of this world will be cast out. We're almost there. We're almost there to verse 35 and 36. You see, still, however, there's confusion about the Son of Man. What he has said about being lifted up. Jesus has explained that the Son is going to be glorified and he's going to be lifted up. And in the context of the seed dropping to the ground, it is obvious to those who are hearing that it means that he is talking about his death. And they're confused. The crowd is confused. They say, how can this be? For we, we know that the Son of Man, when he comes, he will never die. Uh, so tell us, who? Who is this Son of Man? So we come to this point in John's gospel where these two images come together at this point, and the audience of all people is a group of Gentiles. Jesus' response is that he gives the divine equation. And the divine equation is this, I And the Son of Man, and the Son of Man not only brings light into the world, but is the light of the world. So we come to verses 35 and 36. So Jesus said to them, and I think this is his disciples and the Gentiles who are listening, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. A couple of things to observe from this passage, I think, that are important. The first is the situation is urgent. Jesus has made this clear. It's an urgent situation. The second observation is he brings together the imagery of the Son of Man and the, and the light of the world. The situation is urgent. Three times in this These two verses, he's talked about it. He said, for a little while longer, the light is among you. You notice he says, for while you have the light, walk in it. While you have the light, believe in the light. Just as Jesus' time on earth is coming to an end, he is going to die, of course, resurrected and go home, but he is going to die just as he is going to die for every person that walks the face of this earth. There is an appointed time to die. You see, the time of light eventually is eclipsed, Jesus is saying. Just as as Jesus' time on earth for ministry is coming to an end, and he is going to his eternal home, to his eternal destiny, we need to be reminded that for each one of us, time is running out. The sands of time are going through the hourglass. And as the bottom fills up, if we have not made that decision, the time for making the decision about our eternal destiny is running out. You see, Jesus is speaking about the urgency of the call. Darkness threatens to overtake us, he says. If people don't walk in the light here and now, Jesus tells us today, then they will lose their ability to see reality as it really is. And we talked about that the last couple of weeks, seeing reality for what it really is. You know, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, He says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe so that they might not not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. You see, people all around us today walk in that darkness. And when they do, I think what Jesus is urging is, when you walk in the darkness, you don't know where you're headed. Not just today and tomorrow, but eternally. When you walk in that darkness, he's, he's saying, you lose your moral and spiritual bearings to live godly lives here and now, but you also don't realize where you're headed. You're blind. And if people continue to walk without that light, when the sands of time finally run out, their destiny is eternal darkness, separation from God and in several places in the gospels. Jesus is very explicit about that. He says, when that time happens then, They will be cast into the outer darkness, and there will be great weeping and gnashing of teeth. One thing that Jesus is saying in this passage is time is of the essence. There's a sense of urgency. I am going to be on this earth only so long. And of course, then he calls his disciples to be the light of the world. But just as his time was running out So our time runs out if we have not made a decision for him. The second thing is this. He brings together these two important aspects of the Son of Man and the light of the world. He says, walk in the light. Walk in the light. This is a total lifestyle decision. The word is related to the word peripatetic, which we use for people who walk about. Walk about. It has to do with a holistic behavior. When he says walk, it's not just ambulatory. It's not just using your feet and your legs. He's talking about a whole lifestyle, an outlook, your habits, your attitudes, the direction of your life. And he says, keep on walking. It is a present imperative verb. He's calling us to be consistent in walking after him. Just as he has said before in the Gospel of John, this is a clear-cut decision between light or darkness. To walk in the light is a choice. It's not just mindlessly taking a stroll. Either we choose to serve God or we serve the world. He said this in the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot serve two masters. You will either love the one and hate the other or you will be despise the one and be devoted to the other. In James's gospel, in James's letter, he says that if we are friends with the world, then we have chosen to be enemies of God. There is a clear-cut decision. It is like when Elijah stood before the 850 prophets, 450 of Baal, 400 of Asherah. He stood before the king of Israel, before Ahab. And he said, it's time to stop dickering. It's time to stop dissimulating. It's time to stop compromising. You cannot have both. How long will you halt between two opinions, he says to them. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if it is Baal, then follow him. It is a clear-cut decision that Jesus is talking about here when he says to walk in the light. You see, either we are clearly in the light or we're clearly in the darkness. He talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about it last week. Remember what he said about the eye? He said, the eye is the what? The eye is the lamp of the body. Hmm. And if your eye is clear, the whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, like if there's a moat in it, remember that. If your eye is bad, then the whole body is full of darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? There's a choice this morning. Every person on the face of this globe has a choice to make, whether they walk in the light or whether they walk in the darkness. The second thing that he says here in, in this passage is to believe in the light. To believe in the light. This, once again, is a conscious spiritual choice. It's not something that we do naturally. It's not according to our natural instincts. It's not aimlessly sort of believing in things. It is a cognitive, active decision based on the Word of God and God's promise. This believing is not just in the head. We know that. It's to trust. To trust in a reliable relationship with the light of the world. To trust in a reliable relationship with Jesus Christ. For we're told in John's prologue, it wasn't John the Baptist who was the light. It wasn't any of the other prophets who were the light. He says the true light that was coming into the world was the light of all men. And that was, of course, Jesus Christ. Only he is reliable. John later in his first epistle puts it this way. The darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. In 1977, in September, they launched Voyager 1. It's hard to believe that's 46 years ago. Many of you were not born then. And where is it? It's going, going, going. It's in interstellar space now. It's gone beyond the heliosphere. It's 15 billion miles away. Well, what guides that satellite even today? a 12-foot high-gain antenna that is controlled by the AACS, the Attitude and Articulated Control System. You see, it's tuned and it keeps it on course and on mark. But you know what's going to happen in a couple of years? The power in Voyager 1 is finally going to be so weak that it cannot serve its useful purpose anymore. They'll probably shut it off. It won't do any more scientific uh, experiments and it will become redundant junk someday in outer space. Christ promises to give us direction. He fine-tunes us to our spiritual antenna and he never runs out. He is a perfect guidance system. He is of infinite duration and his ultimate purpose is the destination to be at home with the Father. You see, there is an end in mind with Christ. When we believe in Jesus Christ as our direction and our compass, we don't follow worldly standards. Worldly standards of good and right do not prevail. You see, because they're socially constructed. They're, and there is some truth to postmodernity there. They're socially objective, culturally conditioned look at the world around us today and it is nothing like what it was 50 years ago because the norms that are out there today are so socially constructed and driven by a narcissistic self-focused mindset. No, we don't follow those worldly standards. We follow Christ. And we need to beware of counterfeits. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that Satan disguises himself as a what? An angel of darkness? no as an angel of light. And there are false prophets today. Some of them even stand in pulpits and proclaim a false gospel. They are his servants who disguise themselves, Paul says, as servants of righteousness, but they're actually servants of darkness. You see, there is a confusion of darkness today. The other day I visited Kate and Brady Cohn at the hospital. It was over there in Mansfield. I hadn't been there in a year, year and a half or so since the birth of the first child, Emma. And there was construction there. And it was about, oh, three o'clock in the morning, two or three o'clock in the morning. It was dark. It was kind of rainy. And I, I tried to negotiate myself to what I thought was the emergency entrance. And then lo and behold, guess what? I saw right in front of me a sign that was red and white. And what do you think it said? Wrong way. What do you think I did? In a big hurry, I turned around. I finally found the entrance. But folks, that's a real problem. Under the cover of darkness, do you realize that Texas has the highest rate of wrong way fatal crashes in this nation? 75 a year. Just the other day by Hewlin Mall, headed westbound on the eastbound lane, was a crash that killed two. Back in September, on Chisholm Trail, three blocks from my house, a drunken driver driving south in the northbound lane left one young lady dead. The month before that, in August, on the Dallas North Tollway, headed north in the southbound lane, two dead. What's the common denominator in all of this? There is a confusion sometimes in the early hours of the morning when you can't see the flow of traffic And if you maybe are not familiar with the territory, either because you're inebriated or maybe you're new to the neighborhood or maybe sometimes you just forget where you're going. Under the cover of what? Darkness. There are people all around us every day, folks, under the cover of darkness that do not know where they're going. But they're going the wrong way. And they're headed for a spiritual crash that will lead them eternally dead. This is what Jesus is talking about. You see, there's a great sense of urgency. Walk in the light, not in darkness. And Jesus' purpose in extracting from his disciples belief and trust here is to grant them eternal life. It's not to be a harsh taskmaster, but it is to give them what we all yearn for eternal life with our Father. He says later in this chapter in verse 46 and 50, you see, I've come into the light of the world for this reason that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And I know what the Father's will is. The Father's will is for you to have eternal life. That's his reason for calling to believe in Jesus Christ. And this decision must be actionable. It's not just in the head. He's already said, before he says, believe, he says, you need to walk. If you believe and you talk the talk, you need to walk the walk. It must be purposeful. It must follow Christ. He says, come, follow me. And if anyone serves me, they must follow me. And we're reminded that that means that we need to be the seed that falls to the ground and we die to self. It must be sacrificial. We must die to self so that we can bear fruit and share the gospel with others. And it must be permanent. The verb that he uses here once again is a present imperative. It means that we don't just believe once. We don't just make a decision when we walk down the aisle. It doesn't mean that we just make a decision when we go to the baptistry and we're immersed. It doesn't mean that we just make a decision when we decide to go to seminary and take classes. It doesn't mean that we make a decision only when we teach Sunday school. It means that it is a continuous lifelong commitment to trust Jesus Christ every step of the way. We follow him. Not only who gives us light, but who is light. Let me close with four observations. This message, number one, is for everyone. God loves every person on the face of this globe, and he wants every person to be saved. This is Jesus' last act of ministry, public ministry in the Gospel of John. And he reveals all of this, the Son of Man and the light of the world and the urgency of believing and following. He reveals it to whom? A group of Gentiles. It's for everyone. You see, this prefaces what happens with Peter and Cornelius. It prefaces what happens at Pentecost. It prefaces Paul's being the apostle to the Gentiles. Secondly, we're compelled, therefore, to witness as his royal family, his royal priesthood of believers. We are called out of darkness into his marvelous light so that we might proclaim his excellencies. Just like Paul, we have a commission And he expressed his commission in the book of Acts near the end when he gave his testimony. And his commission is the same that we have, to open the eyes of them so that they might not stay in darkness, open their eyes of the Gentiles to the light, and to free them from the dominion of Satan to God. We have a responsibility to witness. This message is for everyone. We have a responsibility to witness. And each one of us must make that important decision. My my hope is that each one that is listening this morning, that is watching this morning, has made that decision. But if you haven't, the decision must be made right now. The key to right living now and the key to our eternal destiny is that we believe in Christ as the light and we walk in the light of the world. Let me close with this last observation. The time is urgent. The harvest, you know, we've been saying is white. But you know what? The storm clouds are gathering. The darkness is closing in. And folks, we know at the end times that will happen. The storm clouds are gathering. The darkness is closing in. There is a limited time to accept the gospel. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. He may come this afternoon. So for everyone on the face of this globe, the time is limited. But for each person, if you're listening this morning, for you as an individual, your time is limited. You have no guarantee for tomorrow. This moment in time is the accepted day of salvation. Let me close with a final example to illustrate this point. Yesterday, I went to the dedication of the museum, a new extension of the Vietnam War Museum out in Mineral Wells, and a fellow by the name of Don Blanchard spoke. Don Blanchard is a Medal of Honor winner. In 1968, he was a Navy corpsman. He was then about 23 years old, I think, and he was helping a wounded Marine that had been hit in a firefight where Don had also been. And there were four other Marines that were gathered around this wounded Marine. This Navy Corpsman, Don, as he was ministering to him and helping him, a grenade then was thrown into their midst, and you know what he did. What did he do? He dove on it, and it didn't go off. And he realized, and he took it, and he threw it. And just as it cleared the circle of, of Marines, it exploded. For this act of supreme heroism, Don was awarded the Medal of Honor. Just stop and think about that. A moment frozen in time, a split second in one's life. And you know what? Don Ballard's life after that point was never the same. You see, forever and ever and ever, he has another identity. That day in May of 1968, he was a Navy corpsman. After that, after 1970, when Richard Nixon and William Westmoreland put that medal of honor around him, he was a recipient of this nation's highest award for valor. So you see, wherever he goes, he speaks to people about this. He's identified with that split-second frozen in time. Do you get my point? Well, if you don't, it's this. Do you have frozen in your mind that split-second moment when you committed yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, you may not remember exactly when it was, but do you have it frozen in your mind that your life at that point did what? It changed. And at that point, you were no longer the old Tom or the old Sue or the old Jim or the old Beverly. You're a new person. And from thereafter, your whole life was changed. Your identity was changed. Your eternal destiny was changed. My question is, and especially if you're watching this morning, have you come to that point, that moment of crisis, where that grenade has been thrown into your midst and you feel the darkness closing in and you don't know what to do? What does Jesus say? Believe in me and walk in the light. And your life will never be the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, as the Son of Man, to die on the cross and to give his life as an atonement for our sins. We know that we're all sinners. We know that we can't save ourselves. And we know from your word the promise is that if we trust in Jesus, your Son, our Christ, as our Lord and Savior, that you will give us the forgiveness of sin that you will welcome us into your family, that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you will redeem us and give us eternal life, and that we have a place, an eternal destiny, that is prepared by your Son, Jesus Christ. Our prayer is this morning, at this moment in time, frozen in space, that there would be someone who would make that decision for you, indelibly imprinted on their soul to change them forevermore. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.